Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Dr. Ann Bradley will be joining us to talk about the impact of the coronavirus outbreak on the economy. Dr. Bradley is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. She served as the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, where she developed and commissioned research toward a systematic biblical theology of economic freedom. She is a visiting professor at Georgetown University and has previously taught at George Mason University and at Charles University, which is located in Prague. She is currently a visiting scholar at the Bernard Center for Women, Politics, and Public Policy. She served as the Associate Director for the Program in Economics, Politics, and the Law at the James M. Buchanan Center at George Mason University. She worked as an economic analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, and she is also a professor at IWP, where she teaches a course entitled Economics for Foreign Policymakers. Dr. Bradley, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. The coronavirus has been a huge topic of discussion these past couple of months. I mean, you can barely turn on the TV or look at your phone without seeing some sort of new update about the coronavirus. This outbreak has been unsettling supply chains, freaking out the stock markets, and intensifying this fear of a global recession. So today, we want to talk with you, IWP's resident economist, about both the short-term and long-term effects that the coronavirus will likely have on the economy. The past few weeks, we have seen a stronger emphasis on social distancing and stay-at-home mandates, which have definitely taken a toll on the economy. But in your opinion, what will the next few months look like regarding the economy? Does this have the possibility of turning into a recession? Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, It's great to be here, and I'm so grateful to be a guest on your podcast. So, um, yeah, let's dive right in. I think... There's a lot we can talk about here, and I will say it is not all bad news. I think that's one of my biggest concerns as I watch the news and just track what's going on in general. I think people are uh, rightfully concerned. I think it's good to be concerned. I think it's good to take extreme precautions. Uh, But I do think that there are things about this economic slump that will be different than other economic slumps or even recessions. And so I think there's some silver linings here and I'm happy to get into the details about that. But what I would say is, you know, what we're seeing, as you mentioned, we're really increasing and heightening the social distancing. I I prefer to call it physical distancing because I think that's what it really is. We want to be physically distant, but we absolutely want to be socially connected because we're social beings. And so we always need that. And I think, um, you know, just being as positive and optimistic as we possibly can about the future is really important. So um, a couple things that I will say, you asked kind of what are we, um, what will we expect to see in the next few months? And like a good economist, I will say the answer to that is it depends, (laughs) but I won't just say that. And I think what it depends upon is how long um, many businesses remain shut down. So if you look at the unemployment numbers, uh, in two weeks, U.S. unemployment, and these are people for filing for unemployment claims, went to about 6.7 million, or increased by 6.7 million. So this is enormous. It's a lot of people, and it's cause for concern because those are people who... 
um, don't have jobs anymore. And so the question that they face, of course, is that, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to pay their rent or their mortgage and take care of their family? So these are real concerns. So that's bad news. Uh, and we want people to be able to get back to work as much as possible. Um, if you want economic growth, if you want income gains, people have to be able to work. And so, of course, the big question is, how do we balance the social or excuse me, physical distancing with the need to keep people at home as much as possible and um, to keep kind of people away from people that they, you know, or away from others, especially if it's unnecessary. And so I think the good news of the unemployment numbers is that those jobs are, are to some extent still waiting for people to return. So 6.7 million new unemployed people is a lot but those jobs uh, can be refilled so long as the closures don't last forever. And so that would be my warning, uh, is that if the, especially small businesses, because they're the ones that can least afford a shutdown forever, right? If they can't engage in any sales, any merchandising, then eventually you have to close your doors and, and those um, closures are, could likely be permanent. So I, the longer that the, uh, people are unemployed, the longer the businesses suffer, I think that means the less likely some of the smaller businesses will be able to reopen. And I think that will have an impact on the economy. But what I will say is the recession that we are that we should expect is not like what we faced in 2008. So in 2008, we had a, a brewing housing crisis. That was what we would call or what we call a structural problem within the economy. And that structural problem was a mismatch between housing sales and the real demand for housing. This, of course, infiltrated the loan and the, the mortgage market and really caused a lot of economic havoc. And that takes a long time to recover from that. I think this recession will be very different in the sense that there is no structural problem with the economy. That is not why we're feeling the economic pinch. We're feeling the economic pinch because of the physical distancing requirements. And so therefore, what was true of 2008 and true of the Great Depression is not true here. So I think that's really the good news is that there's we should be optimistic about the future, about the possibility that we're, or, or the reality, I would say, that we're going to get out of this. Um, again, I think the concern is that the longer businesses, you know, kind of have to keep their doors closed, uh, the longer we will feel the economic effects of it into the future. Recently, and there kind of exists this interesting correlation between the stock market and the coronavirus. So what would you say is the relationship between the stock market um, and the coronavirus and why has it had such an impact? This is a great question. And you know, stock markets are all about what people expect. So stock markets are at, can be one signal of the robustness and uh, you know, thriving level of an economy. And of course, when when the status quo decreases, when you have a you know a certain expectation about what the stock market's gonna look like and it starts to decline, we get even more worried. Uh, and so I think you know that you see people's fears playing right into the behavior of the stock market. Um, and so th there's no real surprise there in terms of, as you mentioned, the correlation between the coronavirus and, and the stock market. So for example, if people are afraid that airlines aren't going to be uh, able to get up and running in the, in the near future, then you're going to see the stock market react to that. Um, if you see that, but I mean, if you remember President Trump's 
uh, press conference about, I think it was about two Fridays ago when he declared the initial state of emergency, but then he actually had CEOs from Walgreens and Walmart and uh, drug companies, and he gave each of them uh, a few minutes to speak. And if you were watching the stock market respond to that, uh, it was increasing. And I think that's because in that moment, people were given an insight or an example into the fact that businesses can and will rise to the occasion to overcome COVID. So um, I wrote something last week uh, titled Creativity Will Kill COVID. And I, what I mean by that is that entrepreneurship is our way out of this. We need creative people from pharmacists and scientists and researchers and doctors and companies like 3M and Dyson and people who are rushing to make masks and hospital gowns and ventilators and even distilleries who are making hand sanitizer you know, while we're seeing shortages of hand sanitizer, this is the market responding in the precise way that you want it to respond. Amazon, Walmart, grocery stores are rising to the occasion. They're changing their business models. They're making sure people get their groceries, but in, you know, a safe way. And I think that's exactly what we need to get through this crisis. It will ensure that people get fed, that people get the health care they need, but they were adapting around the current restrictions. So you'll see that reflected absolutely in the stock market. How will the recently passed stimulus bill affect the economy? And do you think there will be any unintended consequences of the bill? Well, that's such a great economic question. <laughs> so I appreciate that question. Um, of course, economics is always about looking for those unintended consequences. And so, you know, the thing that I would say about the stimulus bill, this is, this is tricky in the sense that, um, you know, when you look at what's going on with air travel, for example, and you see that almost overnight, um, you know, uh, flights are going to close to zero. And, uh, you know, these airline companies are not able to sustain for very long um, that type of change in their overnight business. So one can look at these problems and say, gosh, um, you know, what is the government in a position to do to help those types of business? But what I would say, you know, part of the stimulus bill as well is to try to make available to small businesses loans uh, so that they can keep their employees, so that they can stay in business. So I think it's much more appropriate to direct funding to smaller businesses uh, because, you know, they, they have less of an ability to um, store away big amounts of cash for this type of crisis. So I think the unintended consequence, I would say the biggest one, honestly, is this. I do not think, and other economists, I, I, I think, agree with this statement. I do not think that we're going to go back to this pre-stimulus level of spending. And we tend to see that that's true. Um, Rahm Emanuel very famously said, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think this is one of those times where the, the federal government is not going to let a crisis go to waste. And so when you look at what was going on with that stimulus bill, uh, basically, for every dollar that goes to taxpayers, $6 goes to businesses and politicians' pet projects. And so that to me is concerning. I think the stimulus bill, um, parts of it are important and helpful for people, especially people at the bottom of the income distribution. Imagine, for example, if you're a dishwasher in a restaurant, you cannot work from home, right? So 
Um, when this happens and, and restaurants now are only delivery or takeout, there's not even a need for a dishwasher and you can't do your job at home. So what do you do? You're now unemployed. You have to file for unemployment. As I mentioned before, those, those departments are being heavily taxed right now because unlike a normal recession, everybody got un- became unemployed at the same time. That's very atypical. And so I think the stimulus um, bill could have been more helpful. I would rather see um, those trillions of dollars directed to those types of individuals and to small businesses that have a harder time withstanding this than to you know, large corporations who have much more ability when times are good to save their cash for a potential um, crisis like this. So, you know, that to me is the unintended consequence. When there's a crisis and we radically increase government spending, once the crisis is over, we tend to not go back to the pre-crisis level of spending. We saw this around 9-11. And if you look at the history of government spending in the United States over the past hundred years, really you know, once we hit 1913 um, and you get the establishment of the IRS and the federal, you know, federal taxation, then that changes everything. And you see the growth of government spending grow and grow and grow and grow. And of course, this is not just true for the U.S. It's true for um, many other countries. And so I just think we're going to have to figure that out because the problem is somebody has to pay that. Um, And who are the people that are going to be required to pay that into the future? American taxpayers. Uh, So we need to just be very judicious in times like these. I think there is a role to do something to help. But I think, you know, lining the pockets of cronies is not uh, what I would recommend because I think that won't stop in the future. Now, just kind of moving on uh, to the long-term effects of the coronavirus on the economy. You know, we are seeing reports that China is recovering from the coronavirus. You know, we're a little wary to fully trust that information. But the truth is, eventually, things will go back to some level of normalcy. You know, however, I believe that the coronavirus outbreak will continue to be a popular topic of discussion for a long time to come, and really something that we kind of look back upon. Um, But in your opinion, what are the long-term changes or issues that we are likely to see as a result of the coronavirus, especially as it pertains to the global economy, you know, are we likely to see this push toward globalization or kind of this fear of globalization come about? Obviously, the role that China has played in this by, um, you know, hiding the facts, um, the way that China dealt with uh, their uh, exposure to the virus in the early days, of course, changed the whole world. If they had acted differently, if they had not covered it up, et cetera. So we know that story. We would be in a different position, uh, but we're not. And so what I'm worried about is what do we take from all this? Do we just turn inward and not engage in global trade anymore? I think that's uh, the wrong response. Because uh, any economist would tell you that trade should be based on the terms of comparative advantage. And what that means is that we trade with people who are the lowest relative opportunity cost producers of those goods. And so we need to be trading with the world, again, especially if we care about um, people at the bottom of the income distribution, right? We want them to have greater access and greater affordability to the goods and services they need to thrive. And so you don't wanna stop that. You don't wanna stop the momentum of globalization. But I do think that we have to be cautious going into the future in terms of how are we going to deal 
um, with countries like China, who clearly, um, and this coronavirus is not certainly not the only incidence of them not playing by the rules, but playing by their rules. So I wouldn't want to choke off or cut off trade with China, but I think we're going to have to have some serious conversations about what that looks like. What, what I don't want people to do is say, well, you know, we shouldn't trade with anybody and we should, you know, erect a lot more trade barriers and that going forward, we should try to produce everything domestically. That is a, um, an economic disaster uh, because it's going to raise the prices of goods and services to consumers. And of course, what we just talked about was we're also going to be paying back a stimulus bill over time. So that's a double whammy. We don't want to do that. So we need to be careful and we need to be thoughtful into the future. But I would say uh, we don't want to walk back on globalization. We want to keep walking into it because um, the world works better when we trade with each other as much as possible. Uh, and that, I think that actually tends to mitigate the behavior of countries like China. So there's still a lot to, to do um, in terms of you know, how we handle China. But putting that, that country aside for a moment, I think you know, global trade is the way that we go and that we continue to go. You asked about other changes. You know, I, it will be really interesting to see. I think there's going to be some cultural changes. I think you're going to see people in masks for a while, uh, especially if there's some resurgence um, into the fall. I think that uh, this is going to change the way businesses operate because what we're finding, and this is a good thing, right? Human beings are adaptable. Um, I, what we're finding is that a lot of people can do their jobs from home. Um, who never, you know, maybe had the opportunity to do those jobs from home. And if that can continue, that could be a, a, a huge cost-saving measure for businesses. So the way work cultures proceed, I think, will be interesting. I, I actually think the way that we engage in education, um, right now we're doing all this remote learning, the way we engage in some levels of education will probably change because we will probably learn new ways of doing things. And I think that, that again, is that's cause for optimism to see that human beings are adaptable, businesses are adaptable, and some of those changes um, may continue into the future. The last thing I'll say, and again, one of the silver linings, if we can call it that, is that these onerous regulations that thwart businesses and innovation in many cases are being rolled back, right? So uh, now you can carry 12 ounces of hand sanitizer on a plane uh, before, what was it, three ounces or something like that. And, and so in a crisis, if you don't need those regulations, are those regulations ever necessary in the first place? And so this is where economists, I think, really um, can add some insight into what regulations have been helpful and which ones really have not been helpful. Because what we're seeing right now is we need tests, we need vaccines, we need rapid clinical trials for drugs. And having the FDA really step to the side and let businesses do this, uh, to me, is um, very hopeful for the future. And I, I hope that some of those regulations remain in the dustbin of history, as one might say, because I think that, again, is going to accelerate commerce, innovation, and allow us to deal with something like this, should it ever happen again in the future. So going along with the regulations, what do you think the government's role in protecting the U.S. economy is, especially as it pertains to the private sector? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think what the government's primary job is to do is to is to protect the environment in which business happens, in which business occurs. So the 
way I like to think about this, and, and certainly the way that I talk about it with my IWP students, is we think a lot about the economic freedom data. And so this is kind of a, a global index that's been done by many organizations uh, really for the past 45 years or so. And what they do is they go around and they empirically collect data and they give countries a score on how good they are, that's the way you want to think about it, at providing an environment suitable for voluntary exchange that's coordinated by markets. And so countries that score very high on economic freedom are countries like the United States and Canada, countries in Western Europe, um, countries that score in the very, you know, at the very bottom of the economic freedom data are countries like uh, modern day Venezuela, Argentina. Um, so that's the role. Of, I think that's the primary role of the government is to provide an environment in which people can thrive, people can flourish, people have social mobility and people have economic mobility. So what kind of protections does that look like? I think it's providing for the rule of law protecting people's property rights through independent courts, having low levels of regulation, um, a small government relative to the size of the or to the size of the economy. So if the government spending eclipses what the market is able to support, then the government is going to crush the economy. Um, openness to international trade, sound monetary policy and sound currency. So as economists, that's what we look at and we go around and we score countries across the world. And so to me, this is a very helpful way to think about what the government should do, but then what the government right, should not do, um, which is kind of get directly involved in the production of goods and services, creating an overly burdensome regulatory system, engaging in reckless and volatile inflation, shutting off international trade, et cetera. Do you think that the the coronavirus could result in a shift towards state socialism? You know, again, this is, I think, one of my concerns because I think in a time of crisis, people want the problem to be fixed, whatever the crisis is. In this case, it's making the virus go away. And of course, governments can't control viruses, right? Um, uh, the only thing we can do is adhere to medical guidelines by engaging in physical distancing, um, washing our hands, having good hygiene. Uh, now we're encouraged as we go out when we have to, to wear masks. I think these are all very sensical and reasonable uh, guidelines from the government. But what I see um, are increasing calls, for example, for the government to take over entire industries. Um, and I am very worried about those claims because what economics at its core teaches us is that no one knows how to create an economy because economies are not designed. Um, there's no designer, there's no architect, there's no, there's no one person or one bureau or one body that says this is you know, what the United States is gonna produce next year. And so they run around and tell people to do it. In fact, economies work in the very opposite direction. They're based on decentralized information and decentralized actors, entrepreneurs, uh, big ones like Jeff Bezos and small small ones like your local cupcake baker or dog walker. And those people have ideas about how to serve their you know, neighbors and their community. And so they open a business to try to engage in problem solving. And that's how you get economic growth. The countries that have persistently engaged in economic growth by allowing people to come up with ideas for problem solving are the countries that have grown wealthy. 
on the contrary, the countries that have tried, attempted to design economic outcomes are the economies that have immiserated millions of people. So modern day Venezuela certainly uh, comes to mind, Cuba, um, but of course the Soviet Union and their 80 year experiment uh, with you know centrally planned economies was an abysmal failure. So I, don't, I think we cannot forget history uh, and we have to remember that just because we're in a crisis does not mean the facts of how economic economies grow rich have changed. The facts remain unchanged. And so I think the best thing we can do right now is encourage businesses to adapt delivery, to go contactless, you know, shipments, all these types of things that we're seeing businesses do to try to provide goods and services to people, but also to try to be safe. And I think that's how we're going to get through this. Um, so it, the opposite of democratic socialism or socialism in general is what we need, not just now, but into the future. Just kind of a follow-up question to that answer. Could you explain to listeners why a free market economy is better equipped to handle crises like the one we're seeing as opposed to state-directed socialism? The reason uh, that they are, again, it kind of goes back to what we, we were talking about just a minute ago. Nobody knows. I mean, that that is the problem of the world is that no, um, there's no repository of knowledge that tells us, okay, here's all the things you should do when there's a pandemic, right? Or uh, any other situation. And so we have to figure it out. Markets are about discovery. At their core, they're about discovering new, better ways to do things. How do they do that? They do it, and my IWP students will know this because we talk about it all the time, through the three Ps, prices, property rights, profits, and losses. And so the reason that markets are good at adapting, overcoming, discovering new ways of doing things is because they are decentralized in the way they operate. They use prices, profits and losses, property rights, rather than state socialism, which frankly would require a government bureau to figure out. So let's just use a very concrete example in terms of what we're living through right now, which is the absence of hand sanitizer, bleach, and toilet paper. It seems like every time you go to the grocery store, those things are not as easy to find. Um, and when you find it, you get very excited, uh, right? And you you hope that you know next time you go, you'll be as lucky. Um, what I find fascinating about this is that even in a time of crisis in a country like the United States, which is governed by a market economy, even in a time of crisis, when the shelves might get wiped out every single day, you know what happens? The next day, those shelves are stocked up. Why is that? It's because there's a decentralized process in place that communicates information from buyers to sellers. And those sellers respond very quickly because they want to make money and they can only make money if they get that toilet paper to you and the hand sanitizer to you, right? So the fascinating thing is when you go to sleep tonight, those grocery stores in your community might be empty. But the chance that they're going to be full tomorrow is very high. If you live in Venezuela today, the grocery store shelves have been empty for years. And you have no hope that they will be full and stocked anytime soon. Because the very thing that brings stocked grocery stores to you is absent in Venezuela. Again, entrepreneurs responding to profit and loss and using prices. So to me, it's very clear that we need to allow markets to work right now because they are going to help us solve these problems. And I think we're going to learn a lot uh, because into the future, 
you know, we'll learn a lot of lessons about how we dealt with this, what we could have done differently. But I think we, we do, as Americans, have to be very grateful that we live in a country where, you know, most grocery stores get restocked. And right now, you know, it might be every day. It might be every other day. But there are many of our fellow human beings that live across the globe cannot say that. And it's because they don't live in a society that encourages entrepreneurs to solve problems. And then I just have one more question. You've mentioned a few of the silver linings of this. Do you have any others that you would like to mention? Yeah, you know what? I'm very encouraged by the fact that businesses are rising to the occasions and they're switching their production to provide masks and ventilators. Some are, are, are engaging in lots of charitable giving of those things. I think we're seeing nonprofits rise to the occasion and do the same. And I actually think we're seeing people help each other. Um, there's lots of campaigns to help the elderly in your community, uh, checking in on them to see if they need groceries. You know, I mean, I think this is this is easier to 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 deal with if you're living with you know several people in a family. If you're elderly and you live alone and nobody's checking on you, this could be very difficult to get through. So I just I think that we're doing a lot in the private sector and in the charitable sector. Um, and this is what Americans are about. This is, um, you know, when de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America, uh, this is exactly what he observed then. And I think it's true of Americans today. So I think that makes me feel very optimistic that we're going to get through this. I think it makes me feel very encouraged that people are um, really dropping everything to try to help people, whether it's delivering food or going on, you know, setting up online uh, grocery ordering for seniors. Um, all sorts of things that we're seeing. We're seeing increased blood drives and being able to donate blood in a safe way that protects you, but also ensures that we don't run out, which is going to be so critical. So those types of things that I'm seeing are, are very encouraging. Well, Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for um, speaking with us today and giving listeners a more in-depth understanding of the economic situation that we are seeing today you know, with the coronavirus and just providing a little bit more insight as to what the future could hold for the economy. Um, thank you again, and we really appreciate you being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Join us next time as we speak with IWP professor Dr. Joshua Moravchik to discuss the rise of socialism in American politics. Thanks again, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.